bow our hearts just one more time, shall we? Father, we just commit this study of your word to you. Lord, we ask you to pour your blessing upon us now by opening our ears and our hearts. Lord, reveal more of yourself, we pray, and transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. Lord, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got to the end of Genesis, and I've been praying for a number of weeks about where we should go, what we should do. As I think most of you are aware, um, it's not just Mars bars and toffee crisps. My wife is pregnant, and uh, we've only got a few weeks left um, before the baby comes. Um, and so I thought it'd be nice to do something a little bit shorter, um, because we're going to have a few visiting and guest speakers uh, over the coming weeks as when the baby arrives, uh, just to give us a little bit of time as a family um, together. Uh, we'll still be here, obviously, but um, it just means I haven't got to spend that time in preparing. So I've been just really seeking the Lord as to what we should do, and the Lord really has laid on my heart um, probably the strangest book of all, um, Lamentations. Um, but I think this hopefully will be a real blessing and encouragement to you. Um, I pray that the Lord would really just speak to you right where you are. We'll talk a lot about this as, as an introduction, and we're going to just, just take three weeks, if we can, Lord willing, just to go through this book. It's only five chapters, but we'll see how we get on with it. So the book of Lamentations comes from the Latin, which comes from the Greek itself, uh, lamentia. It just means to lament, to mourn or weep. Of course, we have lament in our own vocabulary, to lament, mourn and weep. Now, the book is written by Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 587 BC, again at the hand of the Babylonians, at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The Hebrew title, interestingly, as a lot of the Hebrew books are, are named after the first word in the book, and the first Hebrew word in the book is echia, which simply is how. And really, that's a great summary for the book, because it's how has this happened to this place, to Jerusalem? You know, this was the the city of David. This is the place that David had laid all the plans, and then Solomon had built the temple. This is the place that God had said he was going to put his name there forever. And Jeremiah, weeping as he's looking over the destruction of this precious city, He's asking the question, how? How has it come to this? In Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Which city? Jerusalem. That's the the, the context of this. In the mountain of his holiness. Jerusalem, as I'm sure you're aware, was built on top of a mountain. Mount Moriah, effectively. This is referred to as the mountain of his holiness. This was a holy place as far as God was concerned, as far as his people were concerned. And then beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Of course, it was the city of David, it was the city of Solomon, but ultimately it was going to be the city where the Messiah would rule and reign. This psalm is a psalm for the sons of Korah, we're told. It was written to commemorate the deliverance from a combined assault from Moab and Ammon 
and Edom. And interestingly, in the, the context that this is given in First Kings, we find that the, the, song, uh, the songsters, the singers, was to sing this psalm or to sing these words out. And as they brought their praise to God, God delivered the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting that we have this psalm as a remembrance of the fact that this place was holy and special. And when God's people cried out, God delivered this place. And yet the contrast now is that Jeremiah is looking over this city. How could this happen? Back in 1 Kings, verse 9, we read this. This is Solomon's prayer to God at the dedication of the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I've builded. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant. And to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee this day or today. That thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. Solomon's saying, Lord, we're dedicating this temple to you. Please, when we pray from this place, look toward us, answer our prayer. And then in 2 Chronicles, we kind of get a reply of that because this is God speaking. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. As for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. What a response to Solomon's prayer. How special this place was. You see, the throne and the kingdom were to be eternal. It wasn't just something that was a a short-lived dynasty. This was something that God was establishing and made this promise to David and reiterated to Solomon that this was going to be a perpetual kingdom. And that one day, one of the sons of David would be the Messiah. And he would be the one who would rule and reign over the house of Israel forever. So the question again is, how then, given all of this, could Jerusalem be destroyed? Well, you'll notice in these promises that God gives, there's a number of ifs. If you obey me. If you follow my commandments. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. And, of course, the assumption of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day was that God surely can't destroy Jerusalem. And that's why they went around saying, peace, peace. If you read Jeremiah, this was one of the challenges he faced because Jeremiah is called to proclaim to kings, and particularly to Israel, that the Lord is bringing judgment. And the prophets at the time said, no, God can't, you can't, not on this place. This is Jerusalem. This is the place that God has put his name. He won't do anything to this place. And the problem was that then gave them this kind of false sense of security. They could do whatever they wanted to. They were safe. They were in Jerusalem. And of course that led to all sorts of things which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, just looking at the 
topological view of this area from the sky, looking at Mount Moriah. It's part of a ridge system uh, that goes up Mount Zion on one side, Mount of the Olives, Mount of Olives on the other, and that kind of ridge bearing up in the centre to the peak. Uh, what is known in, by the Jews as Achidah, this, this um, Mount Moriah where Abraham uh, would have offered Isaac, where this ram was offered at that time, but it's where Abraham prophetically says, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And some 2,000 years later, another father on the very same spot offers up his son. Just slightly below that, You've got this part of the, the, the area where it becomes the, the Temple Mount. So you've got the Teropian Valley one side, the Kidron Valley the other side. And then the bottom end of this, the Hinnom Valley. We'll make reference to that in a short while. Now if we just kind of look at this again. Salem, the old city, Jerusalem is from, from this name. Uh, and then the top there, the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan. Uh, this was the area when David had uh, been tempted and fallen prey to... Uh, Satan's uh, uh, temptation to number the, the people of, of Israel. Of course, he was warned against it, but he went ahead and did it. And as a result, the Lord gave him three choices of what would happen. And of course, he opts for a plague to come upon the people. Many people die, but it stopped at this place. And this is where David then purchases this place. He says, he's offered it for nothing by, by Orna. And Orna says, you can have it, you just take it. And he says, no, I will not offer that with that which cost me nothing. It's a great lesson in worship. Worship should always cost us something if it's true worship. And so David then lays the plans. Of course, David wants to start the temple, but he's uh, told, Nathan reminds him, uh, actually, uh, no, God has said, no, you're not going to do this. You've shed a lot of blood, but your son will do it. And this is where the temple then is later built. And as I said, right at the top there is that peak uh, where Abraham offered Isaac, or would have. And just zooming in on this a little bit, because I want to show you, you see the... Exactly the same thing. So this is just a, a map that you can Google. You can find the, the topological view, uh, you know, the heights of these particular peaks and so on. Uh, but you see it maps beautifully with what we have there today. So the Temple Mount and then right at the top there, that place that today we know as Calvary, Golgotha. And if you look at the back of your Bibles, you'll find also that that will map beautifully with the maps you see in the back of your Bible where the Temple was supposedly built and, of course, where... Some people call it Gordon's tomb. And there's a question mark normally there in your Bible maps and things that says maybe that's Calvary. I can tell you it is Calvary because it's the only place that that fits everything, all the details. It is right at the top. It's the peak. It fits every other detail. So that is without question where Calvary was and where the tomb was that Jesus was buried. Some of you have had opportunity to go to Israel and you've actually been there and you've seen uh, the tomb and so on. But the reason I'm showing you this is because, so the legends or the stories go, Jeremiah had gone outside the city walls and was sat just to the side of this area of Calvary on the same piece of rock effectively. There's another area that's referred to as Jeremiah's Grotto. And it's typically just to the side there. And Jeremiah was sat there looking down upon the city watching the destruction. And it's from there that he then writes the book of Lamentations. Lamentations effectively is just, it's Hebrew poetry. It's a poem that Jeremiah is writing just to express these these deep feelings that he has. And isn't it interesting that the place where Jeremiah weeps for the sin of his people 
is the very same place that later Jesus would pay for the sin of his people with his own blood. That's just another view of the, the city of Jerusalem during Solomon's time. And you can imagine Jeremiah just outside the walls at the top of that area, just at the peak, sitting down, looking at the smoke coming up as the city's burning. As Nebuchadnezzar's armies have invaded, they've broken, their, it was like under siege for some time. And finally they break through and the city's destroyed. Jeremiah just lamenting. Again, the book starts, we'll see in a moment with that, how? How could this have happened? Jeremiah had spent 40 years prophesying the judgment on Jerusalem and on the kings. But that didn't change the fact that when it actually happened, it was like a, a dagger in his heart. You know, we've spent many years, a number of us, talking about the tribulation, talking about what's going to happen on earth. And sometimes it's easy to almost become a little blasé about those things because we talk about Bible prophecy and, and so on. When that begins, there will be the same kind of feeling for us. Although we will see it, no doubt, from heaven. We won't see the, the beginning of the tribulation. We'll, we'll be gone before that. But I suspect it's going to have exactly that same feeling to us. How could this happen? How could these people that God had created, in this world that he created perfect, be reduced to this? We're going to see a number of parallels with our own day, with our own times, our own situation as we go through this. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, Jeremiah, we're just told there, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests. So Jeremiah was of a priestly tribe, a Levite. They were in Anathoth. Well, it sounds like it's got a lisp, doesn't it? Anathoth. In the land of Benjamin. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. So we're given the span now of his ministry. The son of Ammon, king of Judah. Oh, Josiah was a great king. He brought incredible reforms. The, 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 the biggest, most wonderful Passover that the nation ever celebrated was done during the days of Josiah. It was told the 13th year of his reign is when Jeremiah starts to prophesy. And it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Not such a good king, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year, with the final year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah. I'll show you how this works in a second. King of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. If we look at the final kings of Judah, just to help you kind of put some context to this, Josiah reigns for 31 years. He dies in a bizarre situation. We haven't got time to look at that this morning. Uh, interesting conjecture as to why all this happens. But he, he's a good king. He's a godly king. But he dies in battle against Pharaoh Necho. What makes this that strange is that Pharaoh Necho was on his side. But he goes out to fight him. Very interesting reason. Maybe we'll look at it some other time. But Josiah has three sons. Jehoaz is taken captive by Pharaoh Necho after Necho destroys Josiah. Jehoaz comes to the throne. Necho goes off to fight with the king of Babylon and on his way back, he takes Jehoaz down into Egypt. And then the second son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, reigns for 11 years. You get the picture there of the, the final kings as you see them. So Josiah, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, which is three months, and then finally Zedekiah. 
Again, you see, Jehoiakim is an interesting uh, individual here. Let me just go back to... Jehoiakim is appointed by Pharaoh Necho uh, to be king after he takes his brother away. He reigns for 11 years, but in the third year of that reign, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He serves him for just three years and then rebels for... Uh, sorry, he's conquered in the third year, sorry, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in the third year, he's, thir- for three years he serves him, and then for five years he's in rebellion, which eventually forces Nebuchadnezzar to come back, sort him out. And then we find that for a short while, we end up with Jehoiachin um, on the throne, just for three months. And then that leads to, he was his son, he's taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And then finally, we have Zedekiah. He was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns for 11 years. That's the final 11 years. That's the final kings of Judah before everything falls apart. Just to kind of give you some kind of context of where this all occurs, you can see there the time of the exile. So we've obviously gone through all of creation of Abraham. We've gone into the land. We've had the kings, the division of the kingdom. And then right at the end of this time, Israel's already been taken captive. And Judah now is the final days of, of Judah. And now we're looking at this destruction um, of Jerusalem. Now, just to give you context of the the sieges and so on, the first siege and the first uh, deportation of people from the land occurs in 606. That's when Nebuchadnezzar comes. And that's when Daniel and Daniel's friends are taken captive. Daniel, seemingly just about a 14-year-old lad at that time. One of the nobility, one of the princes of the land taken away captive to Babylon. The second siege occurs in 597. That's when Ezekiel is taken away captive from the land. But but Nebuchadnezzar still allows Israel the right to have their own king, although by this time he's now appointing them. And then we get to the final siege, the third siege, which is the one that Jeremiah is now observing. The first siege begins a period of 70 years for the nation, referred to by Jeremiah himself as the servitude of the nation. They'll serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. We're told it's the 10th day of Tibet, the final uh, day of the siege, that last siege is the same day that Ezekiel's wife dies in Babylon. And the Lord makes it very clear to Ezekiel that he's not to mourn for his wife in the same way as the people aren't to mourn for Jerusalem. It's a very hard thing to do. But the Lord was using this surreal situation with Ezekiel to say that actually people shouldn't mourn because that which has come upon Jerusalem was that which they deserved. That final siege then begins this period of 70 years for the city itself, the desolations of Jerusalem. The, the people's captivity ends and they return home in 537. But finally in 518... After a number of false starts, they actually get to rebuild the temple, finally after this period of time. So, interestingly, the book was to be memorized. Lamentations was to be committed to memory. It's written as an acrostic. Now, we looked at this when we looked at Psalm 119. So, the first verse would begin with the letter in our alphabet, A. The second verse would begin with B. The third verse would begin with C, and so on. So the, the children typically would read this. It's incredible when you look at what's in here. But this is, again, how Jewish children would learn their alphabet. 
You know, we have that A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know, and often if you're trying to, if you're trying to think of a letter and where it comes, you know, you know when we try to log on to your online banking and you've got to work out where the letter comes in the alphabet and you're counting, you have to do the little alphabet thing in your head, don't you? Well, this is how the Jews learn to remember their alphabet. Chapter 1 has got 22 verses, again, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 2 also the same. Chapter 3 is different, it's got 66, so the first three verses all effectively have the letter A. The next three all have the letter B, or Bet for for the Hebrew, Aleph, Bet, and so on. Um, Again, chapter 4 is the same again, with 22. Chapter 5, though, is not an acrostic. Chapter 5 is a prayer, to conclude the book. In the Tanakh, that's the Jewish Old Testament, uh, it's listed among the, the five roles or uh, the megalith. Uh, it's to be read on special occasions. The Song of Solomon was read during Passover. Ruth was read during the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost Harvest. Ecclesiastes read during the Feast of Tabernacles. Esther read during the Feast of Purim. And then Lamentations read in synagogues annually on the ninth day of Av in their calendar. That's about mid-July for us. To commemorate the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. We'll talk more about some of those things as we go on. But typically even now, on a Friday afternoon, Jews in Israel will still gather at the Wailing Wall and they'll read some of these verses and mourn. Let's go into the the text. Now in chapter 1, we're just going to see, again, it's like a a poem uh, that's been written. We see Jerusalem presented like a weeping widow, mourning in solitude. And you see the the breakdown. I'll leave you to, to look at this as we go through. Let's just get into the text, though. So, how does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How has she become tributary? You know, if you remember back to Deuteronomy 28, you remember that the Lord had made a number of promises. The Lord had said that Israel was to be the head and not the tail. That's what he wanted for them. But now she's become the tributary. She's become the one that's serving others. No longer is she the lead. And interestingly, how does she sit on her own? Now what we're going to see as we go through this, and I don't think there's any coincidence that this is the, the book the Lord would have a study for now, because at the start of this year I said I really feel the theme that the Lord has for us for this year is holiness. And what we're going to see as we look at this is the horrible consequences of sin. And what sin does. You see, Jerusalem had been this place, it had been one of the greatest cities on the earth. It was a city where David had ruled and reigned. And then Solomon, the wisest man on earth, who amassed immeasurable quantities of gold and silver. Silver was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. There was so much of it. Do you remember the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? She heard all these stories and these rumors and thought, that can't be true. And she gets there and she's absolutely blown away. And she says that not even the half of it was told me. We're going to read in a minute that this is all because of the sin of the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everything has got stripped away. You know, mindful of Matthew 18 and the parable that Jesus gives. 
about the man that owes the debt and he's forgiven his great debt and, and so on. He goes out then and he exacts this, this money from somebody who owes him a much smaller amount. Well, in that we find that he can't pay the debt. And he's commanded, the, the master commands that he's thrown in prison. And everything he has, his house, his family, he loses everything potentially. And that's when he pleads and the master's merciful on him in that situation. But you know, that's what sin does. Sin will root out all our increase. We read of that in the book of Job. Lust does that. But all types of sin will just strip us bare. And I want you to see the, the context here. That something as wonderful, as blessed, as, as holy, as sanctified, whatever words we use, as Jerusalem was, could be reduced to this. Verse 2, we're told that she weeps sore in the night. And her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All those that try to say, oh, well, do this or do that. Follow after, after this path. They have a funny way of abandoning you. You see, Satan doesn't want to bless you in any way. You know, so often things are presented to us that they're going to enrich our lives. Material things particularly, we have a whole industry out there, marketing machine, trying to tell us what we need to buy. What's the next important thing that we must have to enhance our quality of life? You know, you've only got to look at the number of extremely wealthy people, millionaires and so on, that end up taking their own lives. Those things don't help. They don't solve any problems. You know, Satan will try and convince us with all sorts of other things. Shortcuts to success. Lying, cheating, adultery, lust. It's all presented in a way that it will be good for you. It will help you. You'll enjoy it. You can't be expected to just to carry on all the time. You know, you need some you time. Well, interestingly, when it comes to the crunch, all those comforters suddenly disappear. And they didn't provide any comfort at all. Notice all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Or oh, how quick Satan is to turn on us. He wants to bring us down and when he does... He's got us right where he wants us. Now, Jeremiah, lamenting for his country here, yeah, and we live in the land of Whitfield and Wesley and Spurgeon and people like that. How far has this country fallen already? Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwells among the heathen. Yeah, just cast out. Having to find homes in places that really are not home. And she finds no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn. Because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Now, just beginning of verse 4 there. The ways of Zion do more because none come to the solemn feast. Now, you read at the end of the book of Psalms, you've got a whole bunch of Psalms there that are referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. And they were typically the Psalms that the pilgrims would read when they were coming up to Jerusalem. Three times in the year. 
The Jews would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. We, we read of it even in the New Testament. Jesus goes up to celebrate the feasts. And that's what the Jews do. And it'd be great festival, great singing. And it'd be a wonderful occasion. You know what it's like, any of you that have gone places, I mean, for some of us more recently, we've gone to, to Creation Fest and we've had a lovely time. It's great when you go and you see people that you've not maybe seen for the last year and you can fellowship and you can catch up. You talk about what God's been doing in your life and all sorts of things like that. Well, this was that kind of thing. They would see people they've not seen for a while and it'd be just a great gathering. But now, none of that. No one's going up to Jerusalem. Nobody's heading that way to celebrate any of the feasts. The gates are desolate. It's interesting because the gates typically was where the council of the city would be located. Those that supposedly are in leadership are very quick to flee when things really get bad. They're very vocal when it suits them. Notice her priests sigh. These are the priests that have been crying out, peace, peace. There is, there is no problem. We're not going to be destroyed. This is Jerusalem. And now they're sighing. The Hebrew word behind that is even more emotive than sigh can truly convey. The virgins are afflicted. You know, there's, a, there's a, an account in the book of Judges about the daughter of Jephthah. An interesting account. I think misunderstood a lot of the time. Um, some people think that she was offered as a sacrifice. That's not the case. She was dedicated to the Lord, just as Samuel was dedicated to the Lord for the rest of her life. Jephthah went out to battle and he basically said to God, look, you know, when I come home, whatever comes out to greet me, it will either be offered to the Lord or I'll offer it in sacrifice. If it had been an animal, it would have been offered in sacrifice. It's his daughter that comes out first. So she offers him, she gives him, gives her, he gives her to the Lord. As a, as a result of that, we're told that she, for three months, goes away with her friends and bewails her virginity. She's not going to get married. And here we're told that her virgins are afflicted. These young people in Jerusalem are no longer going to get the opportunity of getting married. They're going to be taken away as captives. They have no certainty of what's ahead of them in their lives. So she is in bitterness. Verse 5, her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her, notice this now, for the multitude of her transgressions. This is, it. This is what sin has done. It's because of her sin that this has happened. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Now, at the point of writing this, Daniel has already gone and his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, to give them their Hebrew names, those names that glorify the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they get to Babylon, they're given new names named after other gods. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those that had already gone and many others with them. Ezekiel has been taken away by this point. Verse 6, And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. You know, have you ever noticed when you're close to God, there is something about your countenance, that's the word the Bible uses a number of times. You just glow. 
If you meet someone that is on fire for the Lord, they glow. There's something about their countenance. Conversely, if you meet somebody, particularly a Christian, who's struggling with sin, it's not the same picture. And we're told here that for the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. What had been her beauty was her relationship with God. When that relationship breaks down, well, we have no beauty of ourselves. The only good thing in us is of God. We're told in the book of Romans that in us dwells no good thing. And that translates to the outside, to the way that we appear. You know, even somebody who is suffering, if the Lord is at work in their life, they shine, they glow. And sometimes even more so. Remember Moses as he came down from the mountain? Shone. After being in the presence of the Lord. Well, that is all gone from these people. Did you see the effect of sin? This is Jerusalem we're talking about, but it applies to us. This is such a stark warning for us. The Lord is saying that we should be holy because he is holy. Notice we're told her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. They're talking like deer. They can't find anywhere to drink. They are so thirsty. You know, the world tries to make us thirsty by tempting us and wanting us to go after all these things. But those things just make us more thirsty. They never satisfy. The only thing that truly can satisfy us is God and a deep relationship with God. You know, there's something wonderful. Do you, did you treasure that time that you get to sit down and read his word? I, I do, personally. I absolutely love those times. And for me, most days, it's, it's the morning before I head off to the station, before I go and get the train. I get time to just sit down, a cup of coffee, just open God's word. I love that. You know, have you ever been at times where you, where you get to holiday time? You may be away on holiday and your routine's broken up and maybe you don't get that same kind of time with God. I don't like that so much. I, of course, I love a break. I like holidays. Who doesn't? But it's not quite the same when your routine, that time with God is... Well, these princes here, we're told they become like hearts that find no pasture. They couldn't find anything to satisfy them. And of course, the only thing that really could satisfy them was God. They are gone without strength before the pursuit. You think of Samson. The way that his strength left him when he departed from God. His sin will always lead to captivity. Yeah, it never leads to greater freedom. The world has got this mindset that, that sin... The things that it wants to do with its time, the resources and everything else. They talk about liberty. But it's not. It's bondage. I was listening to a commentary by Joe Foch. And he says, you're not free until you've found the right master. I like that a lot. You know, we need someone to lead us and guide us. And the Lord will do that. But anything else will just take us into captivity. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. What a horrible thing this is that 
Jerusalem now is in this situation thinking back to how it was. Do you ever look back and think about maybe times when things seemed simpler? Maybe there were times you were closer to the Lord. Yeah, I can still remember times where driving home from work years ago, I was just praising God as I was driving, just singing. And it was just those things, just, just wonderful. I praise God we can still do it. But you know, for Jerusalem, that relationship had just broken down so much that they just she, she was thinking of all the wonderful things that had happened, thinking about the time of David, of Solomon. Just imagine what it was like when somebody says, oh, where do you live? I live in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the sense of pride that people would have had? We should have the same kind of sense of pride when we say that we are in Christ. So Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Oh, and how quick the world is to mock. To mock anything to do with our God. Anything to do with his laws, his rules, the word of God. And as the adversaries look on now, they're just so quick to, to mock. <laughs> you said that your place was holy, that God was going to look after it, did you? Now look at it. Do you see how their disobedience had been a discredit to God? Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. This is, this is a summary. All that honoured her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yeah, she sighs and turns backward. It's almost like she's, she's been running this certain way and now is trapped in a dead end and has realised way too late. And now it's just kind of turned back round, having lost everything. Israel, Jerusalem, were to be a witness to God. How they failed in so many respects and instead have become a reason for people to mock their God. We're told her filthiness is in her skirts. Now, we'll see later a reference to her being like a menstruous woman at this point. And the idea is she's defiled. This place that was supposed to be holy and set apart has become defiled. This is the God who said to Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Yeah, we've got a God that has the right to say that as we come before him. And he put his name in Jerusalem, in the temple there. And he's saying that what's happened here is just like you've become ceremonially defiled. She remembers not her last end. Oh, that's an interesting thought as well, because how many people today choose not to remember what's coming? Have you tried to speak to people sometimes about the end times and they just clam up, they don't want to hear? I've known a number of people like that. They don't want to consider their last end. Or what about people that don't know the Lord and you try to talk to them about, do you believe there's life after? I don't want to talk about that. They don't want to consider the consequence or the reality of what's coming. They would rather stay in this kind of head in the sand kind of bubble. Where they don't want to be brought face to face with the reality. 
Therefore, she came down wonderfully. Now, that's not saying this was a good thing. It was just in wonder the way that Jerusalem has come crashing down. She has no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction. Now, we see the language change. And halfway through verse 9, it's as if Jerusalem herself is now speaking. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou did command that they should not enter into thy congregation. Now again, this is a place that was set aside for God. Only the priests could go into the temple. And we're finding that the heathen had gone in. Those that had no regard for God. All her people sigh. They seek bread, they've given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider. Again, Jerusalem saying, for I am become vile. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by, behold and see, if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. And by the way, God is justified in doing what he's, what he's doing here. I'll give you some homework to do, if I may. You might want to put a marker in there now. Just in your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Sorry, chapter 30, uh, 33. No apologies. It's, I was right the first time. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. And put a marker at verse 26. And read from there to the end of the chapter. And you'll realize what was going on in Jerusalem. This is Jeremiah just recounting. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord God. The God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? And he goes on to list what is going to happen. But it ends with a beautiful promise that God is still going to restore the nation. But they, they've been sacrificing. Verse 35, look at that. They built high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch. This was an abomination, and they allowed this into their city, that they were sacrificing their children to pagan gods. This is why God was bringing his fierce anger against the city. Read that, please, because it will help put this in context. I haven't got time to go through that all this morning, but let's move on. From above he has sent fire into my bones. And it prevails against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come upon my neck. I, I love the, the picture that, that paints there. The yoke of my transgressions. You think of a yoke, something that would go around the, the, the neck of an animal, a, a horse or a, an ox or something, as they're going to pull a large load, a cart or something behind them. And this yoke typically would often be made of, of wood today. There's various materials these things are made out of. But it's a kind of a soft, oh, sorry, a, a smoothly shaped piece of wood that would be attached to the chains. And they're pulling this great load behind them. The yoke of my transgressions, this burden that is upon me because of sin, is bound by his hand. They are wreathed, as it intertwined, locked together. You can't break this apart. And come up upon my neck. That is what sin is like. Another expression would be it's like a millstone around our neck. 
That's the idea that's being conveyed here. You know, when we give ourselves over to sin, in whatever way, shape or form, every one of us this morning has things in our life that the Lord is working on, that the Lord is convicting us that need to be changed. You know, and those things, they are like yokes, they're like burdens that we're carrying. And the Lord is saying, lay it aside. That needs to be left at the foot of the cross. I come up on my neck and he's made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands from whom I'm not able to rise up. You know, you see a picture of this in Corinthians where an individual is delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. A similar example really is what's going on here. That the Lord has allowed these things to come upon the city, upon the nation, to wake them up for them to realize the Lord has trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. Notice that God is doing this. And this is in God's word. God is not trying to hide the fact that he allowed this or did this. Oh, God is a wonderful God of grace and mercy, but he's a God of justice and judgment also. The Lord has trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a wine press. Very graphic picture, being crushed. For these things, I weep. Whether this is Jerusalem, whether this is Jeremiah, I'm not sure. The idea is the same. For these things, I weep. My eye, my eye runs down with water. You know, in the final analysis, when the Lord returns and we are taken from this realm and we see things as God sees them, we will be so broken as we look at the abhorrent nature of sin. You know, many times you said these kind of things that people have said throughout history, you know, that the, the, the more they grew in grace... The less they sinned, but the more they repented. You know, and the idea is that as we learn more about the Lord and how holy the Lord is, the things that once seemed okay to us, we don't want to entertain them. We don't want them in our lives. We realize that even those little things are offensive to our holy God. You start to realize what holiness really is all about. That God is absolutely pure. He's perfect. And he invites us into his presence. The only way that can happen is if we also are perfect. That's why it costs the death of his son. To clothe us with his righteousness. And Christ took everything. All the dirt, the filth, the sin that was upon us. Notice that because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. Well, what a contrast for us, because our comforter, the Holy Spirit, has been given to us for how long? Forever. That's what we're told in John's Gospel. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church forever. David, in Psalm 51, we talked about this a few weeks ago, at one of the Bible studies. 
David feared lest he would lose the Holy Spirit after his transgression with Bathsheba and killing Uriah and so on. And he pleaded, Lord, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, for us as Christians, we have a promise from God himself that the Holy Spirit has been given to us forever. And we're told that the Holy Spirit is the seal or the guarantee of our inheritance. Even if we do stumble and fall, and when we do stumble and fall, the Holy Spirit doesn't get up and go. He's still there as a comforter. To, to remind us that the price has been paid. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Well done. Every sin that we've ever committed, every sin we will ever commit, whether through ignorance, weakness, or our own deliberate fault, is all paid for at Calvary. For these things I weep my eye, my eye runs down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate. Because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads forth her hands and there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. Again, the context here. Blood is such an important thing in scripture all the way through. God does not mess around with issues concerning blood. Saul lost the kingdom because got involved in a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice when he was not authorized to do so. He wasn't of the priestly tribe. He wasn't a Levite. And yet he tries to offer a blood sacrifice to God. As a result, God says, that is it. I'm taking the kingdom away. Blood is extremely important. Why? Because it always points to Jesus and his perfection and the payment he made for our sin. Yes, the context is speaking of being defiled. Jerusalem has become defiled. This place that was supposed to be holy. The city of the great king. The Lord is righteous. Now notice this. Because there is no sinner that will end up in hell for eternity that will turn around and go, God is not fair. God is not just. Oh, a lot of people now think that they're going to have words with God. and well, God wouldn't send me to hell because I've done lots of good things. And How many times do we hear that kind of nonsense? An individual at work this week came to me and made a very insightful comment. And they were serious when they said this. They said, hell is going to be full up, isn't it? Because if God is going to send everybody who lies to hell, then everybody's going to go. Of course, it's a true statement, but of course it's missing the other part of the equation, which is the fact that yes, on our own, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus made a way because he became sin for us so that we put our trust in him. The slate is white clean. The world doesn't get that. It can't understand what God has done. These things are spiritually discerned. But the Lord is righteous. This bold statement right in the middle, right toward the end of this chapter. But God is right in what he's doing. He says, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people and behold my sorrow. It's almost as, as, as Jerusalem is kind of sinking down here. There's this shout, there's this cry. Look at what's happened to me. Don't let this happen to you. Behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone 
into captivity. It should never have been like this. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. They died of hunger. But the physical hunger was really just a a side issue. The real problem was the spiritual hunger that was there. Behold, O Lord, I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth, at home there is death. They have heard that I sighed, there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, they are glad that thou hast done it. Thou will bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Now, what we will find out is that God will bring destruction on Babylon. Because of the way that Babylon treated Israel, God will bring judgment. And not just on Babylon, because we'll find also Edom. Israel's brother, Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Esau became Edom, of course. And at this point, and we find this uh, dealt with later, that Edom effectively put the boot in at this point. They saw Jerusalem and Israel in these desperate straits. And rather than helping, they used it as an opportunity to afflict them also. And so this cry going out now, Effectively, Lord, remember those that are doing this to me. Look at their wickedness. And of course, God will judge those that dealt this way with his people. But don't mistake the fact that God was the one that brought this upon them because of their sin. We'll leave it there for this morning. Read ahead, read the next chapter. It's, it's quite depressing in one sense. And yet it's here as a warning, as we saw a moment ago. Jerusalem is crying out, saying, learn from my mistakes. You know, when you're in times when everything seems to be going okay, remember the end. Remember what's coming. Remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will have to give account for how we've lived our lives. Remember when no one is watching that God still sees. And God wants us to be holy because God wants to bring those blessings that Jerusalem was saying, I remember those days. Well, let's not put ourselves in that position. This is a real call to holiness. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, these graphic descriptions given to us here by this broken man. Just looking on and seeing the effect of sin on his own people, on his city. Lord, may we be mindful of your grace by which we stand. And Lord, it is your grace alone that causes us to stand. Lord, it's not our righteousness, it's not our ability 
It's not, Lord, because we've figured things out. Oh, Lord, we need your grace every day, every moment, every hour, if we are to live our lives for you. But, Lord, we desire, we want to, we are hungry for you. Lord, only you can satisfy, not the things of this world. So, Lord, give us a hunger for everything that is holy, everything that is of you, and take away the desire from the things of this world. Lord, as we started by looking at the beginning of this year, Lord, we pray that you would create in us the desires you want us to have. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, give us godly desires that will be for our blessing, for our edification. Lord, that our faces would shine, that our countenance would reflect the beauty of our Savior. And Lord, I just thank you right now this morning that you have allowed us given us the opportunity of looking at this book to remind us again Lord what it is you want of us Lord we just pray you impress these things upon our hearts we ask it now in Jesus name Amen May God richly bless you through this coming week